incredible testimony. And you only just got a, a snippet of what her testimony is. And hopefully you will better understand kind of the transformation that goes on in our student ministry. Um, and how we, we have a great desire to see students' lives changed. But not only that, but that they are constantly growing in godliness. Um, if you are visiting with us, <clears throat> our pastor is out of town. Uh, they are, him and his family are on vacation. My name is Joe Mays. I am the student pastor here. And uh, I'll, be, I'll have the opportunity to be with you this Sunday and also next Sunday as well. So hopefully if you're visiting with us and you don't care about this Sunday, at least come back two weeks from now when Curtis is, Pastor Curtis is back, all right? Uh, no, but I love, I love the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning. And I pray um, that God would use this time to um, make much of himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, I thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. Uh, Father, use this for the glory of God. Use this to uh, teach us and train us in righteousness. And Lord, please, uh, uh, please allow us to see the idea of redemption in the life of Saul as he turns into Paul. And we pray this in your name. Amen. common illustration that you, you might have heard before comes from uh, a pastor who was a pastor in Boston, A.J. Gordon, who was a pastor in Boston when he met this young boy in front of the sanctuary carrying this rusty cage of birds fluttering nervously. Gordon said, son, where did you get those birds? He said, the boy replied, I trapped them out in the field. Well, what are you going to do with them? I'm going to play with them, and I guess whenever I get home, I can feed them to an old cat that I have. Gordon offered to buy the birds uh, from the boy, but the boy said, mister, you don't want them. They're just little old birds, and they don't sing very well. Gordon replied, I'll give you $2 for the cage and the birds, which is quite a deal back in this time. He said, okay, it's a deal, but you, you're going to get ripped off. The exchange was made and the boy went away whistling, happy with his shiny money. And Gordon walked around to the back of the church property. He opened the door of this wirely, wire coop and let the birds fly into the sky. The next Sunday, he grabbed the empty cage and took it into the church and set it on the pulpit to use it as an illustration about Christ coming to seek and save that which was lost, paying for the price for us with his own blood. He said, that boy told me that those birds were not songsters, but when I released them and they winged their way heavenly, it seemed as if they were singing redeemed redeemed, redeemed. See, you and I have been held captive by sin, but Christ has purchased our pardon and set us to liberty. And we pray that when we see a person who their life is changing, that we would recognize this as a process of redemption in Christ. And we pray that we would sing that same song, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. Hopefully this morning you have received just even from our video, just a small picture of the redemption that takes place in lives of our students in our, here in our student ministry. This happens first because of the grace of God. He has been very gracious to allow, allow us to have an effective and vibrant student ministry. But it secondly happens because we have some of the best student ministry 
student workers that any church could ever have. Um, we have 20 to 30 volunteers who help us in our student ministry on a week-in, week-out basis. Um, our, our, church, uh, our student ministry went with our home church to summer camp this year. My brother, I wasn't able to go because we were having a baby, and my brother calls me the week after and says, Joe, you guys have the best student workers I've ever seen. I was like, well, I know. Uh, but in our students' lives, we see redemption co- constantly taking place. And I would encourage you, maybe if you're not plugged into an area in our, in, in our church, maybe you'd be interested in plugging into uh, our student ministry because you know what? Seeing young people's lives change, seeing that redemption take place through young people, there is no greater feeling. So these testimonies that we have heard about, and then in the next service, we are baptizing seven teenagers. Uh, those testimonies that will be shared in those services, it's all because of the glory of God, and it makes what we do in ministry so totally worth it over any of the heartaches or any of the uh, trouble that we go through. It's so totally worth it to see that redemption take place. But Christ throughout history brings about redemption. And probably one of the clearest cases that we see of redemption throughout all of Scripture comes from the book of Acts. So I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Acts, the ninth chapter. The book of Acts, the ninth chapter. This is when we see the conversion of Saul to Paul. Um, It was quite interesting this week. Um, Just the number of responses I got about my sermon title. The sermon title this morning is Redemption. Terrorists turned evangelists. There were some people who thought maybe I once was a terrorist and now I'm an evangelist. That's not the case. Okay, someone asked me that this morning. said, hey, you know, I, I was asked if you were a terrorist. No, I was not a terrorist. Okay, but what we see in the life of Paul is someone who was completely going one way and changed and transformed and redeemed to go the other way. All right, and that's what we're going to see in his life uh, this morning. Let's first start by reading the first nine verses in Acts chapter 9. This is what it says, inspired by God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he asked, or he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men were tra- uh, that were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Point number one this morning that I want us to see through this life-changing redemption story of Saul to Paul is that Jesus <clears throat> meets the unredeemable. Let me say that again. Jesus comes and he encounters and he meets and he changes those who are are unredeemable. 
And that's the case in my life. And if you have given your life to Christ, it's the same case in your life. But it also is the case that we see here with Saul. If anyone were unredeemable, it would have been Saul. Now, please, uh, if you're a non-Christian today and you get confused, I'm going to use the, the, the name Saul and Paul interchangeably. Because if you're unfamiliar with the text, what ends up happening is Saul was the one who was killing Christians. And once he, once he becomes a Christian, he ends up changing his name from Saul to Paul, you know, so that he would uh, get out of that type of mindset. So uh, if I use that interchangeably, uh, hopefully you'll understand that. But, you know, if anyone's unredeemable, it's Saul here because Jesus meets him in the midst of, if you look at verse one, he meets him in the midst of still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Jesus encounters him when he is in the midst of trying to kill Jesus's disciples. That's someone who we would think, okay, this is an unredeemable situation. Saul is what we would consider today a terrorist. That's what he's doing. Is he, is, he is killing and slaying anyone who professes the name of Jesus. Or he is getting permission from the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem to go and grab them and put them in prison. If you profess to be Jesus, Paul is your biggest enemy. Or Saul is your biggest enemy. Saul is the one who will do whatever he can to make sure you don't talk about Christ. And we see this throughout all of the text, uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, we are reminded of this with, with Luke in his book in Acts. And we are reminded this as Paul writes his letters and his epistles, just, just the history that he went through. So we see this several times in Acts 8.3. It says this, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them in prison. Acts, Acts 22 verses 4 and 5 says this, I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as a high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in, in bounds or bonds in Jerusalem. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of, of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the, in the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. In a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in the foreign cities. Do you see the hatred that Saul had toward the believer? I mean, this is serious here. This is someone who at whatever cost was willing to hurt Christians. This is what we often only read about in foreign countries today. It's not something we would really more than likely experience here in the United States. I'm not saying it never happens, but it, it just, it's very rare that someone with this type of hatred towards Christians. So Saul was at this time in his life, 
is charging Damascus at full speed when he was suddenly stopped dead in his tracks by Jesus. Why is he heading to Damascus? It is thought that he was heading in the direction in, in a direct result of the revival that was taking place led by Philip, Peter, and John throughout that region. So this is what Paul does. Let me, let me try, or Saul, this is what Saul does. Let me try to explain this real quick. Saul hears of the good things that are, hap- that are happening for the Lord. He hears of revivals that are taking place. And Saul then goes, well, that's where I want to be. I want to go towards that area where something good is happening for Jesus so I can take care of those who are sharing his name. Think about the confrontation that Saul occurred. Here with Christ. In verse 3, a light from heaven flashed around him. In verse 4, Jesus speaks to him. Okay, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Other places he speaks of seeing Jesus at one point here. Now, it directly tells us in Acts that the people that were with Paul never saw Jesus, but it never says that Paul didn't see Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I saw Jesus. So he goes from you know, not believing in Jesus being the Messiah to in, a, in just a moment on his knees, light coming from the sky and seeing Jesus Christ. It says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So he sees Jesus, and then he becomes blind. Verse 9 says he couldn't see. He couldn't see for three days. I don't know about you, but if I lose my sight for three days, I'm going to be wondering what's going on. All right? Personally, I think this is a direct result from him encountering and visually seeing our Lord and Savior. He gets blind. So imagine, just imagine the confrontation or, or, or imagine what, Paul, what Saul is dealing with here when he is confronted with Christ. This is someone who was killing Christians to now being face to face with Jesus. And what I want us to realize this morning is when we truly encounter Jesus, when we have a true, rich encounter with him, it becomes life-changing. We can't help but let it become life-changing. Can you imagine what Saul had to feel when he came face-to-face with the Savior whom he was persecuting his people? When you truly experience and encounter Jesus, it can't help but change you. It was explained to me this way, that Paul's life teaches us that no matter how hard we try, we cannot do enough to earn God's love. Our works based on righteousness is pious morality and religion are useless if they are not focused on and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, you you can know a lot of good things, you can think that you're doing right, but if you don't have Jesus changing your life, if you don't have a true encounter with the Lord of, of creation, with the God of this universe, then everything, everything that you know is worthless and useless if you don't know Jesus. 
Because here's the thing about Paul, or about Saul at this time. And, and I want us to understand this because I think that this is commonly um, misconceived. Saul knew the law during this time. He was a man of the law. He was doing what he thought was right. He wasn't some, Saul was not some criminal. Although I label him a terrorist, but I label him a terrorist because of what he is doing, not what the law would say. So everything he was doing was bound by and okay with the people who were in authority over him. He knew all the laws. Get this. He probably knew the Old Testament, the Torah. He probably knew that as well as many of the people who believed in Jesus. He knew all of what said, was said in there. But his knowledge at that time, before he encountered Jesus, before he came face to face with Jesus, all that knowledge meant nothing. And then the pieces come into place when he finally encounters Jesus. And he realizes his sinfulness. So some people here today have never been, have never truly encountered Jesus or have never been saved. And we pray that you would truly encounter him today. This is often because we think Christ is focusing on the sin rather than the sinner. And that's not the case. Let me try to explain this really quick because I think that this could be really confusing. Christians, we often teach and talk so much about sin, sin, sin. And we should, and we, that needs to be a major discussion for us. But what tends to happen is we talk about it so much that we, we teach this Probably pragmatism is what I would call it, that Jesus Christ is more focused on Joe Mays' sin instead of Joe Mays being a sinner. Do you understand that difference? Christ isn't as focused on my specific sin. He is, he is focused on my heart and who I am and me being a sinner. And he wants me being a sinner to, to give my life over to him. And in doing that, what do we end up focusing on? Getting rid of the sin that's in our life. So Christ is more generally focused on the sinner, and the sin ends up taking care of itself. I hope that, I hope that helps you as a non-believer and also as a believer. See, this is a change that doesn't just affect your money, or your attendance to a local church, but it affects your desires. So when we are redeemed with Christ, when we encounter Jesus and we, we come face to face with him and he changes us, you know, often we think, well, that just means I'm going to give a little more money to the church and I'm going to come to church a little more often. Well, here's the thing. There are people who have given money to the church and there are people who have attended the church, but you know what? They don't know Jesus. There has never been a person who has come to know Jesus by writing a check to the local church or by coming to Sunday school. You come to know Jesus because you encounter him. You understand what he did for you on the cross and the life that, he, that, that, that he's offering to you. See, Saul was a terrorist who was killing Christians. And Christ changed his desires. He changed his want-tos. He changed everything about him. Saul goes from killing Christians to, as we're going to see, about, see in just a minute, to being one of the most effective evangelists that this world has ever seen. 
He changed, his, he changed his desires. If he can change Saul's desires, he can change yours. Think about redemption throughout the Bible. Think about Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 with Noah. The redemption that he brought his family as the flood came. Think about Abraham and Isaac as Abraham is about to, to um, sacrifice his son and the redemption that is brought there. Think about the redemption in Ruth with Ruth uh, wanting and desiring a godly husband. Think about the redemption in Jeremiah 18 with the potter and how he gives us that illustration of how he, he has everything in his hands and Christ controls everything. Think about the redemption with the lost sheep and how Christ goes and he seeks out after that which who was lost. Think about the redemption with the prodigal son, a son who leaves and, and comes back and is welcomed back into this family. And then think about the redemption that we see here in see here in the life of Saul converting to Paul. See, redemption is throughout all scripture. When you encounter Jesus, it changes you forever. It doesn't just change your your uh, your everyday how you uh, make decisions, but it changes everything about you. It changes your desires. And Christ meets us at his timing through multiple different ways. Okay, it, only some of us think today, if you're a non-Christian, this is what some non-Christians think. Well, only if I could have an experience like Saul, I would believe. I mean, light from heaven, having to fall to the ground, seeing Jesus, that's all I need. Well, here's, here's the truth of the matter. We don't need that type of experience. This is what we need. It's God's word. And let's just take the encounter that Jesus has with us as serious as Saul took the encounter that he had with Jesus. Now, our encounter is going to be different, but let's just take it as serious as Saul took it. Because some of you are trying to block the encounter Jesus is having with you. Some of you are trying to block that right now. You just want the sermon to end. But here's the thing. If you would be open to being as serious as Saul was when he encountered Jesus, he can change your life. Verses 10 through 17. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, and carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he, mu how much he must suffer for the sake of, the, of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which uh, you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Number two here is Jesus uses the unlikely. Jesus uses the unlikely. Ananias was a common man in Damascus. And he was used as an instrument to help disciple and encourage Saul. Although it's obvious that Christ was the one who did the saving. Okay? Christ did the saving. Christ always does the saving. But he uses other people to help bring them along. Just think of the faith that it took Ananias to confront a widely known opponent opponent of the gospel to share, uh, to share with. This had to be unquenchable faith. Just think if we had this type of faith in obeying the Lord's command. See, this appears to be a suicidal mission for Ananias. And that's what Ananias says. He goes, hey, I've heard about this guy named Saul. He's the same guy who's killing Christians. And you want me to go there? And Jesus says, yes. He says, okay, I'll do it. Just think if we had that same type of passion to do what Jesus wants us to do. You know, he's going and he is, he is helping someone out who has been killing Christians. And Jesus asks us a lot of times to do a lot less than that and we ignore his commands. We need to have that same type of passion because Jesus uses common men. God used one instrument of the Lord to establish another instrument of the Lord. Look at verse 15, how it is phrased here. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. This is, let me interpret what Jesus is saying here. Go and help him out because he is going to do some great things. And just like he is, Jesus is using the unlikely here, he wants to use us, who's the unlikely as well, to share with others. Because guess what? You might not know whom God will have you lead to him. See, trials and sufferings are small in comparison of what we receive in return. And that's what Jesus is saying. Ananias, the, 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 the backlash that you might get is small in return of what's going to come out. And God can only use, or God can use any of us to do immeasurably more. Think about the two individuals focused on in this text, Saul and Ananias, the vast difference between the two. You have one who's killing Christians, the other who's discipling Christians. Strengthened by the direct word from the Lord as a common man, Ananias departed in verse 17, and entered the house. And after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you would regain your sight. Mm. That's good stuff. Jesus commands, he commissions. The man responds. He goes and he does it. And then a miracle happens. His sight comes back. One would have to have thought that Christ would have sent his A-team here. Like, this is the biggest Christian killer in the time, probably. You would have thought he would have sent kind of his core. He would have sent Peter, John, and James, right? His little core there, send those three, because in sending those three, he could throw the hammer down on them. You know, Saul wouldn't have a chance. But no, he sends a common man and says, the Lord sent me. That's, always, that's what he says, the Lord sent me. 
And in doing that, God gets his sight back. The realization here is that Jesus doesn't need any of us for him. He will accomplish his mission with or without me, with or without me being committed to him, obedient to him. But with that said, just because he will accomplish his mission with or without me doesn't mean I, need, I, I can choose whether I should or should not be on board. We must be on board. But please realize he doesn't need us. We need him. Then you have Saul who goes from killing Christians to being one of the best evangelists we have ever seen in the Christian faith. Someone sent this to me last night and I wanted to read this. I thought this was really good. Um, I showed a video a couple weeks ago of Russell Moore who is now um, the president of our, what is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is uh, how Russell Moore recounts a conversation. Russell Moore recounts a conversation with the evangelical theologian Carl Henry. As Moore and some of his friends were lamenting the miserable shape of the church, they asked Dr. Henry, who is a well-known, was a well-known evangelical, if there was any hope in the coming generation of evangelicals. Dr. Henry replied, of course, there's hope for the next generation of evangelicals, but the leaders of this gener- the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are, pr- they are probably still pagans. Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who once, saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith now. And Dr. Mort adds, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin Fish bumper uh, decal. The next Charles Wesley might be someone who is a profane hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be uh, making posters for gay pride march uh, movements right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic. We just don't know who God will use. We just need to be obedient in whom he wants us to share the gospel with. We wouldn't have thought, you know, the people in Saul's day wouldn't have thought of the conversion that happens there. If you knew Charles Colson when he was involved in the Watergate scandal, you wouldn't have thought he would have the platform today that he has. So those people who might be the next big evangelists or evangelicals in our faith might just be people who are right now pagans who need, need to hear the gospel from us. So just as Christ can save the worst of the worst, he can also, he also will use whoever is willing. How willing are you to be used for his kingdom? Our students went on a mission trip to Knoxville, Tennessee, just a couple, uh, just a little over a week ago, we got back. And what I constantly tell them is, hey, it's easy to go on a mission trip. But be missionaries here. You know, it's easy to take 30, 40, 50 students to Knoxville. But let's make sure that when we get done there, that we bring that home here. Verses 18 and following, we'll close. And immediately something like scales uh, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. You notice Paul, uh, uh, Saul, when he is saved, he doesn't take, you know, he doesn't take the um, time before he's baptized. He just 
He got saved and he's baptized. It is, it is obedience to be baptized after salvation. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and con- Found, uh, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Point number three is Jesus saves the undeserving, the unable, and the unfortunate. We do not deserve Jesus. We are not worthy of Jesus. Jesus makes us worthy. We are not what is worthy. So this is true redemption that we see here. Seeing God's grace intercede, which which is evidence that proves that this could have only been God. This could have only been Jesus that saved Saul. He redeems those who cannot redeem themselves. I can't redeem myself. I can't bring upon redemption to myself. It's as Mark Driscoll says that some of you are stuck because your primary identity is in your sin and not your Savior. I tell our students all the time when they're struggling with issues that, you know what? You know how to get out of your sin? Get closer to your Savior. As you get closer to your Savior, you move away from your sin. Then he uses uh, those whom he redeems. He uses uh, Saul when he turns him into Paul. It doesn't matter the state that you're in today, what you're doing this past, what you've done this past week, or even what you did last night. God wants to call you to himself, and he wants to use you. This isn't just a one-time decision. This is a lifetime decision. It affects everything that we do. The summation of the gospel is that we don't deserve God. We aren't worthy of the gospel. But God is gracious and loving and leads people to the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Christ changes our status from unworthy to worthy, from unclean to clean, from a criminal that deserves execution to being acquitted of something we have committed. So we have seen in this passage today three very easy points. That Jesus meets the unredeemable and that Jesus uses the unlikely and that Jesus saves the undeserving, unable, and unfortunate. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you came, what baggage you came in here with today. But I do know this, that the Savior of this universe is about bringing redemption. He is about changing lives. He is about turning your life around. And no matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what your week has been like, no matter what this past year has been like, he wants to deliver you from the bondage of sin that you're in. And the only way that he can deliver you from that is for you to look not to your sin, but to look to Jesus and look to the cross. Maybe you 
are the next great witness for Christ. Christian or non-Christian. Allow him to move in our hearts and our lives as we respond to him in this invitation. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. I think, I'm so thankful that you have saved me and that you have saved those who are in here today that know you personally. But God, I pray that some people in here who don't know you, that they would get a real encounter with Jesus right now. Please have them open up their hearts to what you want to say to them and please change them. And Lord, I pray for much grace during this invitation. As you change our hearts and our lives, which changes our desires. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We want you to